Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. This week, I'm joined by a bloke with one of the most high-profile jobs in the country, Todd Greenberg. And now he's the CEO of the National Rugby League. Todd's job is tough as he's the face of everything to do with the sport. Referees and the rules, TV deals and the draw, player incidents, unfortunately, you name it, he has to deal with it. But I want to talk to Todd about the business side of running a professional sporting code. I'm going to ask him what business are you in? And I also want to talk to him about where he came from. What was his trajectory into being the CEO of the NRL? He's got hundreds of staff to manage and lots of moving parts in this business. You know, things like technology, broadcasting agreements, sponsorships, media headlines, junior league participation, women in rugby league, which I love, and keeping the sport strong into the future. What two things, at the end of the day, would he use to mark himself as to being successful or a failure? We're going to talk about all of this and lots more, so let's get into it. Todd Greenberg, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Great to talk to you, Mark. Thanks for having me. I've got to declare my position first. Um, I am on the board of the Sydney Roosters, have been now for many, many years, and uh, Todd, of course, is the CEO of the NRL, and um, uh, we've had discussions in my capacity as a board member. Todd often addresses our board, and our board sometimes addresses him for, for various reasons. <laughs> Goes both ways. <laughs> Usually not always the best reasons when we're in there, in there addressing the um, NRL, but uh so I, I do know Todd, but um, we're not here to talk about that relationship. We're here to talk about uh, the business of rugby league, and we're also here to know a little bit about Todd Greenberg. Because you know, to be frank with you, no, not many people really know much about you, mate. Other than that's true in your rugby league capacity. So, right, on, mate, <laughs> take me back to, let's say, well, where'd you grow up? Grew up in the East, played, uh, was a Bondi United junior actually, so played a couple of games of footy as a really young tacker in the six, under sixes. Uh, grew up in the Eastern Suburbs, uh, moved south as I got older with my family. Um, south being? South being sort of Blakehurst, Connors Point, yep. uh, where I base myself now. I live in a suburb on the George River called Oatley. Yep. Uh, very happy there, very content. Um, look, I've had a very fortunate background. I'm the eldest of four boys, uh, came from a pretty regular middle class family. But what I took for granted, particularly when you reference what I'm doing now, what I took for granted is everyone comes home, sits with their siblings, has dinner with mum and dad, goes to a good school, ends up in a good university. So where'd you go to school? Went to school called Sydney Tech. Yep. Uh, it's a selective boys high school. Yep. Is that um, Sydney boys? Is it? It's like Sydney boys. There's yep. two of them in Sydney, Sydney right. Tech, Sydney boys. Um, so it was a really good school, unbelievably strong sports school. Um, so played all the sports, footy, soccer, cricket, um, and worked hard, studied hard. And uh, you're pretty conscientious. Well, I don't know if my teachers would describe me like that, but um, I think there is something, though, as I said before, about being the eldest of four boys. Um, I think there's a a natural piece of leadership that I reflect on now that probably shines through a little bit later in life. Um, But but the the purpose of of making that point about you know what I took for granted, you know, four boys sitting around the table every night with mum and dad. I thought everyone did that, and now what I reflect on having met some kids who I described come from a long way back. I was the fortunate one. I should never have thought that's what everyone does because the reality is a lot of the kids that come under my care and control have never been afforded that privilege. Yeah, and, you know, like, unfortunately, I know a few of those particular individuals you're talking about and, and you know, we have had to try to guide them through their sort mm. of the difficulties. And you're right. I mean, I, I went through the same life as you. I mean, I, yeah. I took it for granted. I just thought this is what everybody did. Everyone on my street did that yeah. that I knew of. 
Can I ask you a question about your mum and dad? Are they yep. still alive? Yeah, absolutely. Both here, both unbelievably well and healthy and Fantastic. still actively involved in my life and my kids' life. So, you know, I'm very, very fortunate. And and your uh, three three younger brothers? Yep. Um, what did the four of you do? Well, let's say it's a Saturday afternoon <laughs> and um, you're all under the age of, I don't know, 15. Yep. And what did you hang out? How did you hang out? What did yeah. you do? Well, there's a couple of really simple ones there. We're all always outside and it always had a ball in it. Yeah, and, no uh, iPads. No iPads. Days. No probably technology. Not even, probably not even a television. Well, not much television anyway. No, I mean, I mean, to be fair, there wasn't. And you know, we only had one rule in our house, which is when the street lights came on, we had to be home. Yeah, yeah, you get um, home. And <laughs> mum, didn't, mum didn't know where we were, uh, but it sort of didn't matter. Uh, and I ref- again, I reflect on that, and I look at it now. You know, kids don't aren't allowed outside or don't go outside. There's yeah. all this fear and risk, and you know, that's a real concern as well as technology. But yeah. we were outside, we had a ball, and when it got dark, we were back home. It was as yeah. simple as that. And and, and, and I, I guess around that area, around that um, sort of Blakehurst mm. sort of area, it's probably not the same Blakehurst as it is today. No, very different. Blakehurst is pretty fancy yeah. in those days. But it was it was sort of like um, middle-class Australia. Yeah. You know, like for those people who don't know, Blakehurst is near Hurstville. It's sort of between Hurstville and Sylvania. It's mm. near the Georges River. Yeah. I guess you're probably down there fishing and sort yeah. of and knocking off oysters and yeah. stuff like that. Absolutely, just doing what kids do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, you reflect on what the next generation do now. And again, you used to think that was pretty normal. It probably was for us, but it's not normal for them now. No. Nah. You know, I don't see kids playing at the front of the street with a rubbish bin as the, as the stumps. Yeah, yeah. It just yeah. doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and, and in some respects, it's, it's, not fair. it's pretty sad. Yeah, it's totally not fair because yeah. we had a, we had, it was so good yeah. how to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, and your parents never worried about you playing cricket on the street. If a car came, the car would actually stop for you rather yeah. than the other way around. Yeah, totally. So I think this generation, despite the fact that there's lots of great technology and, you know, there's lots more things to access, I actually don't think they've got it any better than we had it. No, I really don't. I, 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 in fact, I think it's tougher. So, yeah. but how do you do you take any of that upbringing and that sort of nice, stable environment and you know, good family? Do yeah. you take any of that? Does any of that help you? Is there any any of that an advantage in terms of running the rugby league as CEO? I mean, do you, yeah. do you see that, or does it just help you personally to be stable? No, I think it helps both. Um, I think what it what it's done for me is is one gives me some perspective. But, but two, understanding when you deal with, and we deal with lots of issues, you know, we're overseeing 500 young men in a, who play in a competition who are well-paid, big egos, um, but have come from, as I say, a long way back, and some of them haven't been afforded that privilege. So sometimes they come to us with a whole development part of their life that's missing. And that missing you part is social development. Social development. Yeah. You know, sitting around a table every night with your parents and your siblings, you learn a whole pile of life lessons that potentially some of these kids just don't have. Um, so I, I feel a huge sense of duty that rugby league has the opportunity to help these kids by when they come into our environments, we reflect on that quickly. And the really good clubs are doing a lot of this stuff. You would know this in your own club. You see a kid come through who's missed a development part of his life. You become part parent, part counsellor, Part coach, part psychologist, it, it all, all goes together, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, and so what, what sort of that's interesting because what you're sort of saying, and, and I'd see it in our own club, but with some of our board members, etc., and, and also our coaches, mm. etc. But I, what you're sort of saying is that's really interesting. I've never re- ever really reflected on this, but you're saying because you had, let's call it a privileged lifestyle relative to some of the kids who play footy today. Yeah. I don't mean relative to the people you grew up in your yeah, street sure. with. But, you know, you, you have reflected on yourself and your lifestyle growing up and you th- say to yourself, well, that was pretty bloody lucky. That was great. Mm. I, therefore, as CEO, well, I want to ask you, is it because you're CEO you feel as though you have a sense of duty to pay that forward or did you want to become CEO because you wanted to pay that forward? No, I think um, irrelevant of whether you're the CEO or what you do professionally, things like paying it forward and random acts of kindness and these sorts of things, they're either in you or they're not. Yeah. You know, we have a we have a strong philosophy staff. You know, there's 400-odd staff that work at the NRL now. Um, we talk about, at our monthly town halls, things like random acts of kindness. You know, in the, in the balance between being right and being kind, just choose kind every time. It's easy to be right. Um, and so we always talk to our staff about, what have you done this week that's just a simple random act of kindness? You know, I was sitting in my office last week and it was pouring with rain, and Mal Meninga, who's our national coach, is coming yep. in for a meeting with me, 
and I saw him get out of the cab and there's a guy at the football stadium, you might have seen him before, but he's blind and every day he has to come out of the, the football stadium and find his way to the curb by himself with a stick to get a cab and it was pouring with rain and I saw Mal just run out with no umbrella to help this kid get into his cab that was waiting for him in the pouring rain. Now, he came into my office five minutes later absolutely drowned and I, and I didn't tell him that I'd seen him. I said, mate, what happened to you? And instead of telling me what he did, he said, I just got caught in the rain. And, and what's interesting about that, by the way, and that, that random act of kindness by Mal Meninga, and also just the thought process is one of the things we never read about in the papers. No. We tend to read about the salacious crap yeah, in the yeah. papers all the time. You won't read and, that one. And they, but we never really hear about the stuff on the flip side. And, yeah. he, and to be frank with you, even sometimes when I do see things where I see players like, you know, and he's, he's relevant at the moment, Dylan Napper walking yeah. in looking at sick kids and helping kids out at Absolutely. hospitals and stuff like that. Yeah. It's not as, uh, for some reason, it's not as compelling for me to even look at. I it's mean, I, I get sucked into it too, by the way. Oh, I think everybody and does. We just do. It's, I don't understand that sort of negative, um, the attraction to negative sentiment. I don't really understand the psychology of it. But I, I, I fall into it too sometimes. That's a trap yep. and I try to avoid it. Uh, so can I, I just want to go back to, I mean, this sounds a bit... Uh, Weird, but I do want to go back to Todd Greenberg. Yeah, sure. Because I find this fascinating. Um, <laughs> do you think that the random act of kindness and or paying it forward, um, you know, the benefits of your social mm. development in your stable environment as a kid mm. is just something you choose to do or do you feel as though you have a duty to do that now? Yeah, I think I've got a genuine opportunity to use that as a duty. Um, so when you're in a senior leadership position, you are afforded an opportunity to do certain things that others aren't. So when you lead other people, you've got great influence over how they think and how they react and how they behave. Um, so again, I take that one quite seriously. So the opportunity to give back and you know pay it forward, however you want to call these sort of things, comes through a, a leadership style. And so I fundamentally just believe in it. So it comes naturally to me, but it doesn't come naturally to everybody else. So putting it top of mind, raising it in, um, in staff forums and opportunities for people to think like that actually does change the narrative pretty quickly. Is it, do, and do you think this is, do you uh, call on that emotion or call on that feeling or that sense mm. to actually build up your leadership style? I mean, is that something, I mean, I, I don't know, there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, do you just mm. grab hold of that, this sense of um, helping people mm. and, and, uh, putting your hand out to help people, reaching out to people, other mm. people, people are, uh, uh, who are less fortunate than you, or there's an occasion where it's like this, the individual you talked about who was, who, who, who's um, visually impaired and you, you, know, yep. you were concerned about him. Do you use this as a leadership tool? Is that a good leadership tool that you use? I mean, do you, do you recognise it as a leadership tool? Yeah, I mean, probably not. Um, or is it just something in, you do? In a formal sense. So I wouldn't say it's a formal part of things, but... It's something that's evolved with me over my time. Um, and, and I think the more you do it, the more natural it becomes. You know, I'll, I'll give you another really simple example. Last year at Suncorp Stadium, sold out Origin game. I'm walking around outside the stadium about an hour before kickoff, and it's been sold out for weeks. And I see two backpackers who are out here uh, hardly speaking English from Europe. And all they knew was they were in Brisbane and they'd heard about this thing called Origin. And they thought they'd turn up to buy a ticket. And they got there and there's no tickets because it's sold out. Now, you and I both know there's no such thing as a sellout. There's always a single seat somewhere. So I walked them up to the ticker box and I found them two single seats. They were opposite sides of the stadium, so they couldn't sit next to each other. But I made sure they got in. Now, by the way, commercial as well, they had to pay. So there's no freebies there, but I got them in. And so they both wrote to me afterwards to say, we didn't even know what it was, but we knew it was big. It was the experience of a lifetime. I it makes you feel good, right? What colour jersey did it have on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't bet you was that. fucking maroon. They, they didn't even know. <laughs> probably right. I yeah, probably turned two more Queenslanders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much for that, mate. <laughs> so I, I, now let's get we, – we, we, so we had – we got Todd Greenberg there with his uh, three brothers, yeah. Todd being the oldest, and uh, you left school. What happened after that? Yeah, so I left school and I sort of followed a similar path to thousands of other kids, right? I went straight to university. What did you study? Uh, I did an undergraduate degree in sports science. Mm -hmm. um, what is that? What's sports science? Mean? Well, at the time, so, the, you know, I'm... We're we going sort of, back a bit. Yeah, we're going back. Not too far, but a little bit. Yeah. Now, come um, on, mate. Turn yeah. it up. We know. <laughs> it's enough. Yeah, no. So it's, it was really physiology, anatomy, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the physical side. Um, and Is and, that because you were interested in sport? Yeah, I was interested in sport yeah. and I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I always thought sport was some form of pathway. 
And what I realised quickly, so I finished that degree and then I did probably the best thing I could have ever done, which is I went away with a mate for nearly 12 months and just travelled. So gap year. And just had a gap year at the end of my university. Mm. And there's more learning in that year than there is in the three at uni, I can oh, tell really? you. Um, but came back and... and Where'd just, you go? Uh, Come on, tell me uh, where you went. I went everywhere. We, we actually went to, um, went to Europe. I played cricket in India. Um, so got a life experience and then uh, went to Europe and he and I just travelled. And we didn't have plans. We liked a place. We stayed there. We didn't like it. We kept moving. We went to the Greek islands and ended up spending two months there. Wow. So it's, a, it's just one of those periods in your life you're never going to get back, right? Uh, but I came back to, to Australia after spending that year away with my degree trying to figure out what to do. And I ended up working in cricket and uh, I was at the start of what, if you remember back in those days, it was when development officers first started, Kanga Cricket and the promotion of the sport. And I was teaching kids how to hit a yellow cricket ball, a cricket ball off a tee, just work, driving around schools all over Sydney promoting the sport. And so I was a development officer. That's where I started. And when I stand now in front of 250 development officers in rugby league who are out there teaching kids how to pass the ball, I say to them, guys, hopefully I'm a reflection that if you do work hard and you do have aspirations and you do have goals, mate, you can make your way through so a sport. So did, did you have aspirations? I mean, were you a, an ambitious person? Yeah, I was. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I don't shy away from ambition. I think ambition's a great thing. I agree. Um, so, you know, I say to these kids who come through, you're wearing a tracksuit now and you're out there teaching kids how to play, but I'm the CEO of your sport. So, yeah, amen. Bring it on. So, And can I – okay, so here's how old, 22, 23 yep. at this stage? Yep. So you've just come back from Europe, got an undergrad degree, sports science. You've decided that you're now you're now a development officer helping working for what, New South Wales Cricket? New South Wales Cricket, yeah. New South Wales Cricket. And to be, to be honest, Mark, it, it, after about 12 or 18 months, the light bulb went off for me that – geez, I want to do a bit more than this, but I don't have the background yet because my undergraduate degree probably didn't give me enough. So that's when I went and did a master's degree. So I enrolled and at night time put myself through an MBA. An MBA. So you did, yeah. so you did a management degree yeah. so that you yeah. could sort of be, well, that equips you to rise through the ranks. Yeah. It, it was clear to me that I was going to not probably achieve the ambition that I had either dreamed of or thought of without equipping myself with more skills. So at that stage, you know, I was relatively young, first job, got myself into an MBA. So I was doing that at night and um, I met my wife at a young age. We got married pretty quickly and then we had a baby pretty quickly. So there was a period of time for me where I had a young baby. I was at school at night, working full time. It was some pretty tough years. But, you know, when you're young and resilient, you just rip in and get it done. It's amazing how, what you can bloody do when you're that yeah. age. I mean, I, I, I'd be, I shudder to think what it'd be like if I had to try to do something like that today. <laughs> it sort of re-engineer myself. Yeah. Um, so, like, it, it, so in the 20s, you're married. Yep. You're, you're, and you're living still at that area? Yeah. Yep. yep. So you're married. You've got a little baby. Yep. You got, little you, girl. You yeah, got a little so girl. How many children do you have? Two. So you got two kids. You're a little boy. girl. A girl yep. boy. Wow. Yep. I mean, that is people do that sort of stuff. I mean, I kept trying to end up with four sons. <laughs> but you got a girl boy, perfect family. Yeah. And uh, you're still married? Yeah, absolutely. Same 23 lady. 23 years, yeah. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, yeah. I'm also jealous of that because I've never managed it. I've been three times through it and I've got... <laughs> painful work. and expensive. Very expensive. <laughs> Very painful. The, the, yeah, yeah. Part, the painful part was the expensive part. Yeah, to be honest yeah, with. I'm sure. And, um, and, 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 but I, and I'm happy now today I've got four kids and I've got a grandson for that matter. But so... Yeah. So you're in your 20s, you're still working in cricket. Yep. And uh, where did you sort of – can I ask you who you're following? Were you following rugby league? Where did you get yeah, rugby league? Yeah, no, I did follow rugby league. My dad took me to the 79 grand final, uh, SCG. Uh, Dragons played the Bulldogs. Dragons won in 79. And uh, I remember coming out of there feeling sorry for the Bulldogs because they'd been beaten. And I said to my dad, oh, I think I'll follow those guys. And then in 1980, he took me back to the SCG, and you'll remember this. They played the Roosters, and then they won. That was the year that Steve Gearan took that great try over yeah, the top of his shoulder. And, and I remember those days with my dad. Um, I, I genuinely do. And now I take my dad to games now. And my dad's in his mid-70s. He's in great health. But it is such a thrill now occasionally when I'll get an invite to a Roosters game or whatever. Um, I'll ring my dad and I'll say, come with me. And I can see the pride in his eyes when we walk into a ground. And oh, I can see the joy. His son. He's, yeah, he's proud it's fantastic, son. you know. And um, my dad can talk underwater too, by the way. So the, the problem I have is I take him somewhere. It's a family and, trait, though. Yeah, it's, it's a family <laughs> trait. It's not a bad one either. It's good in your, in your current role. Yeah. So, so uh, okay, so here you are. You're a Bulldogs fan. And, um, you know, with lots of ambition, how did you get into rugby league? Like sort of – I mean, it was – because I'm not quite sure. Did you go from – 
cricket straight into to the Canberra the Bulldogs. Yeah, so I had a, I had a two phased approach. So I was at cricket for five years, and and when I look at and I give this advice to young people on their CVs um, about making sure that you're not chopping and changing too quickly on your journey. That despite the fact that you might want to f- find a path forward. It's really important to have tenure and some security and show people that you're in there for the long haul. So I had five years of cricket, loved it. But then this came at the back of Super League. So it was about 98. So Super League came out together in 97. Yeah, exactly. So in 98. Can I just say something? You know, at that stage, at that stage, I was a Bulldogs fan. Were you? And I brushed the Bulldogs as a result of the Super League. Well, they're worse for the Bulldogs. They could could use with you now. Yeah, but but I I did. did, And and I never. uh, Heaps of Graham Muse, a mate of mine. And I grew up with him. And uh, I didn't talk to him for years. And uh, I just thought what they did was the worst thing. And I was living in the eastern suburbs. That's how I became a, a Roosters, Roosters supporter. Board member now. Yeah, yeah I'm a board wow. member now, and I and uh, I went for the, the the traditional club that was in my zone, like yeah. in my where I physically lived. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget that period. And uh, unlike some of my Roosters board members, I don't carry the poison of the, <laughs> the Super League <laughs> or era. one particular bloke from Penrith. I don't carry his poison, <laughs> uh, but but I do remember it. It was very destructive. And actually, I tell you something interesting, but Todd, as a result of uh, the Super League war. Tui's dropped out sponsoring mm-hmm. um, State of Origin, yep. and that's where Wizard became the sponsor. Ah, right. That's how it started. Yeah, cause, and, right. and um, uh, Cole was the CEO of the New South Wales Rugby League, mm. but there was a chairman of CEO then. Uh, uh, Colin Love was a chairman. Yeah, yeah. Chairman. Yeah. Chairman. And uh, I did deal with Colin Love in 1998 because yeah, right. there was no sponsor. Yeah. Tui's, uh, you know, they, they got a better play than our sponsor. So it was, to some extent, it was sort of that whole Super League war was a great yeah. opportunity for me. Absolutely. But so, so y- you... You yeah, so told 90, your dad you yeah. want to be a, a bulldog supporter, yeah. and then what happened? So yeah, so in '98, um, I was offered an opportunity to go to the Bulldogs in a what was designed as an events operations marketing type role. Who was know? the boss then? Uh, it was a guy named Bob Hagen. Um, was it a chairman or CEO? He was the CEO, and a guy named Barry Nelson was the chairman. Well, Bob um, played played the centres for. That's the, right. Yeah, he did for so, the Bulldogs. I remember. So I was young, and um, you know, I was a I was a football fan, but never worked in footy administration. Um, so I, I went there at a time where footy clubs at that point were very under-resourced. You yeah. know, there's really only half a dozen people running the place and everyone did everything. Yeah. Uh, but I jumped in there in the beginning of 98, and you might remember that was a year that the Bulldogs actually made this surge to the grand final in 98, got done yep. by the Broncos. And so that was my first year into a, a, foot, a footy club, and i got to tell you, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was running games out of Belmore at the time. Um, I was responsible for about 10 things I didn't know anything about. And the best way to learn is to throw someone in and tell them to paddle like hell. And that's totally. what I did. Especially when you're younger too. You've got, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're sort of fearless. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You, well, you, you've got no fear because you actually don't know what it looks like if you fail. <laughs> you're um, fearless. It comes yeah, from ignorance. It does. And sometimes that's a good thing. Yeah, no, totally. 100%. Um, so I, I lasted a couple of years there right through to sort of 2001. And it was, if you remember, 01, it was the back of the Olympics, yep. the Olympic Stadium at Homebush, um, had been built in this magnificent big venue for the games and then it was handed to a private operator. And uh, I, I'd been dealing with lots of stadiums in my role at the Bulldogs and they offered me a role to work for a management company that ran venues and stadiums and the Olympic Stadium was their flagship venue. Oh, you, I didn't know that. You went to work for the uh, – Yeah. For, for, who was that? It was, it was called Ogden. Uh, is a management company that runs effectively the Olympic Stadium. And so I moved out of – Effectively, if you, if you look at the beginning, I ran worked for a sporting association or a state-based body, and then I worked for a club, and then I went to a stadium. And I spent the next eight years inside the stadium business. Which is events management. Yeah, and, and what it did, Mark, was it allowed me insight into every sporting code in the country, Yeah, and then it gave me insight into uh, events. So I understood how concert promoters ran their, their businesses. And so what it did was it commercially, I got on the very inside of how every business model worked where the numbers ran, where the skims and margins were. And <laughs> I tell you what, it's the best learning that I've ever had because I saw every sport. The AFL came to the stadium, cricket came to the stadium. We had multiple clubs, rugby union, the World Cup was played there. And then we started attracting things in events. So you might remember uh, the Rolling Stones came into the stadium. Yep. U2 played. Yep. A guy named Andre... I was, at, I was at the U2 concert. Andre Rieur, you know, as a guy. That one. I, ch- I chased him halfway across the world to sign him, you know, and he came out here and sold three sold oh, so you shows. So you, you, went, you went and chased the axe, so, so my, to speak. So my start was operational, yep. and then it became uh, very commercial, and then it became all about driving content and business. So I, I ran that uh, experience right through to 2008, and then I, I got a phone call. 
And the phone call was, hey, Todd, would you think about applying for the CEO role of the Bulldogs? And who was that? Was that George? Um, it was George Paponis. Yeah. Now, at the time, I've got to be honest, I said, look, thanks, but no thanks. I've got a great job here. I'm really enjoying it. I've got massive autonomy. I'm out there just sort of living the dream here. Um, and so I was asked to go and meet George. I did. I went back and met him again, and then I had an one interview. Of the be- one, of the, one of the absolute oh, best. Rock solid, one of the world's most humble and genuine people. Totally, 100%. Um, and, so I, and, and that was a big part of my decision. Anyway, I got to a point where I sat in front of the Bulldogs board in 2008, and, and I said to them, look, guys, whatever you do, whoever you choose in this role, whether it's me or someone else, um, my view is you guys absolutely stink. Your brand is is so busted. What had happened? They'd been through a salary cap issue and then they'd been through that Coffs Harbour sexual assault scandal. Um, And so I thought their club was really on their knees and it almost didn't matter what they thought of themselves. I said to them, people on the outside look at you and they think you're in all sorts. So you've got to actually be prepared for change. Now, when I said that in in an interview sense, I thought, well, they're not going to pick me. So I left. I'm early 30s. You know, I'd never really been in a CEO leadership role. Um, and George rang me that afternoon. He said, "You're it. Let's go. You're going to let's let's do this together." And I remember driving home and sitting with my wife, thinking, "Shit, um, <laughs> give me careful what you wish for." <laughs> I've never been a CEO. I'm 32. Um, what do you reckon you about must this? Have been like one of the youngest CEOs they've ever. Yeah, ever I think I was. There. Yeah, and you know, I reflect on that. That was six years I had there, but George Paponis was everything that you just said he was and more. Um, He said, Todd, I'll get him behind you here. This is going to be a a rocky 12 to 24 months. The first year, we came last. I think the Bulldogs won three or four games. I think we terminated 10 or 12 player contracts. Um, 2000 and... 2008. 2008. And we bought him. Sonny Bill left in the dark of night, you know, and there was a whole pile of drama. Yeah, there was a Sonny Bill period, yeah. But I tell you what, never let a good crisis go past without taking the opportunity. Yeah, And that's what we did. And we and, and I rebuilt it, and I learned. I learned a huge amount in that period of time, and it was a wonderful journey. It really was. I think in the previous year we, uh, I think the, in two thousand seven, I think it was where might have been two thousand six. We got we, we, you, you, Bulldogs played the grand final against the Roosters. Two thousand four, that was. Two thousand four yeah. was it? Okay, yeah. and we, we lost. That's right. Um, yeah. And Sonny was playing. He was. That's right. It was and, his first year. Yeah, and uh, he, he sort of devastated us yeah. to some extent. It was a big, big part of the big part of the reason they beat us, but. Yeah. I never forget sitting there. I was sitting there and um, I was getting abused um, because some blokes remembered me from school, (laughs) (laughs) abusing the crap out of me because I was on the rooster side. Uh, I'll never forget it. Just near the tunnel, that sort of thing would happen today, of course, under your leadership. Oh, no, of course. (laughs) course. So, so, uh, so you've got you've gone and taken on the CEO role, and in the 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 depths of misery for the Canterbury Bankstown um, club, and I and I guess also. To their probably was there any board problems? I mean, cause, yeah, there was. Yeah. There was a whole pile of board issues, and they re-elected a new board. And George had sort of taken on this role of chairman, and you know, he he took a pretty brave punt on me. Um, and and I say this to him regularly, and I said it actually at a function near Christmas where we had some drinks together, and um, we reflected, and I said, you know, you always remember who gave you your first shot. Yeah. And I said, George is in the room. I said, George, you're the guy who gave me the shot. I don't know what you saw in me that allowed you to do that, but Geez, I was unprepared and I probably wasn't ready. But I, I genuinely think when you get into most senior roles, you're never ready. Yeah. Um, and if you want someone to be fully ready, you're looking for the wrong person. Yeah. Well, that, well and and to some extent, when they're fully ready, too, they're too seasoned. Yeah. Which means that um, you can't sort of shape them either. No, that's true. I mean, George probably saw an opportunity to shape did. you a bit. You Absolutely. Know, like, without, without being, I don't mean in a manipulative sense, no, but no. shape you in a way that he thought was the best way forward for the club as yeah. chairman of the club. Absolutely. Which, by the way, is a proper chairman's role, my view these days. So, how did you go from Bulldogs? Mm. Tell everybody who's listening to our audience from Bulldogs. To CEO of the NRL. Yeah, so um, I left the Bulldogs uh, in 2013, um, and you always want to leave somewhere better than you find them, so that's effectively your best legacy you can leave. Um, And at the time, the commission had just arrived, so an independent commission arrives at Rugby League, Completely different well, governance takes, structure. Did that take some time to Ooh, get there? Jeez, that was a painful journey. <laughs> I that can't one. believe it, but anyway. And uh, David Gallup, who'd <coughs> served, you know, the best part of 10 years of the CEO, leaves at the same time a commission comes in mm-hmm. and they appoint a brand new CEO of the game and they bring a guy in from outside who really has no rugby league experience. More but rugby union More sport. rugby union yep. and banking experience. And yep. to be fair, they probably saw the opportunity for a change agent and to really try to put the business of rugby league back together again. And so I get a phone call from 
uh, Dave Smith at the time, who says, look, mate, to be fair, I don't know much about the game. Dave Smith was the CEO. Was the CEO, yep. And he says, how about you come in and work with me? Now, I saw that as an opportunity to sort of take on the football role of the business, clearly with a view long-term to continue to try to keep stepping up. So I came in um, and I worked with Dave for about, oh, I was just on two years before he left. And then a process was put in place about the CEO role. And, you know, at that point, again, not hiding ambition, not, I thought it was the perfect. I thought I was perfectly placed to have a real crack at it. But I did say, you know, talking about not being prepared or not being fully ready. I said to the commission at the time, "If you're looking for a CEO who's perfectly prepared and has all the attributes, you'll never find him. Not for yeah. a role like this. But in a role like this, you need as much emotional intelligence as you need intelligence. IQ and EQ are different things. And in rugby league and in professional sport, you need as much EQ as you do IQ. You need to be able to see round corners sometimes." And that comes from experience and it comes through instinct. And I believe you've got to trust your instinct a lot in making key decisions. I want to ask you a question. Do you get really fed up and get to a low point? Does Todd Greenberg get to a point where he's sometimes positively exasperated and just worn out with the job? Uh, honest answer is no. Uh, I have down days and I have up days but I never really ride at the bottom. I'm never really right at the top either. Um, so I'm, I'm a realist. There's always going to be real difficulties in the job, but I'm never going to let myself bottom out to that point. Um, I'm just not going to allow my headspace and my thought process to get to that How point. How do you control that? Yeah, I've, my wife would describe me as being able to compartmentalise and put things in boxes. Yep. And the more I've done in my career, the better I've got at that. Um, Steve Waugh, who's... For me, the, the cricketer I used to love to watch the most, he said to me once good very Bankstown early boy. on. Yeah, good Bankstown boy. He said to me when I arrived at the Bulldogs, he said, Todd, one piece of advice to you. When you win a game, never celebrate it too high. And when you lose a game, don't go down to the base. He said, um, as a leader, really important, your body language and temperament stays in the middle. He said, clearly, you'll, you'll go up and down from there, but don't make the highs too high and the lows too low. It's, it's really solid advice uh, in a leadership role. Yeah, but uh, I, I get that. But uh, I mean... Does that mean you're – are you faking it and putting it on a front or is that is, is that how your your brain has now been rewired or wired yeah. so that you can sit yourself right in the middle? Yeah, so it's not to say that I sit in the middle and don't move up and down. I do. But what I don't allow myself to do is completely bottom out. So when we've gone through, you know, countless off-field issues, I'm sure people sometimes probably picture me being right at the bottom – and despite how really pissed off I am and frustrated, um, I'm not at the bottom, but I'm, I'm below where I should be. Uh, but I always have a belief that in a crisis or an, or, or an issue you're facing, you're going to always turn that back around again. Because if you don't believe that, then you're in the wrong space. How, how do you, but like, for me, what I do, I mean, I get to that stage. I mean, yeah. you know, I've just been through with the Royal Commission and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, and you know, I've never seen, you know, I've never seen it as bad. Mm. And, what I use as a technique is I, I turn a sport. Like, so I, I train tra yep. and I'll, tra I'll just disappear and I'll train for three, four days somewhere and uh, I'll bust my ass. Some people uh, go on a holiday. They go to a, they go and s sit yeah. somewhere and, you know, do yoga or meditate. Um, yeah. uh, there's all these different techniques. Do you have one or you just... Yeah, and a physical exercise for me is fundamental. If I don't exercise before I go to work... Um, at least every, if, if not every day, at least three or four days out of the five, you know, and then at least once on a weekend. If I'm not physically active, uh, emotionally and uh, mentally, I'm shot. So let's say today you have a really fucking bad day, like a total shocker, right? Like yeah. something just dreadful happens in relation to the thing, you know, to your sport. And Highly to, probable. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> well, that always didn't happen during the off-season, though. Maybe we already started, so we should be all right. Yeah. But let's just say something really tough comes up, yeah. right? Really tough. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and to some extent it sort of gets, to, gets you in the, in the chest a bit, you know? Yeah. Um, what would you do tonight or tomorrow? Yeah, I'd get up really early in the morning and I'd either be having a run or getting on the kayak um, and just getting up really early, probably just before the sun, and then training as the sun just gets up. Just smash yourself a bit. Yeah, just really sweat it out, really give yourself a physical outlay, and then it allows you to then to come back. In, in my mind, it's not for everyone, but in my mind after I've done that, I think better and I'm in a much better space emotionally and I suppose where my concentration needs to be for the rest of that day. Because we've got a lot of people who, who are in business who listen to this and, um, you know, a lot of these, you know, for different reasons, but they get smashed in the business for a whole lot of reasons. Yeah. And... 
you know, people are always looking for some technique as to what works for other successful people in yeah. in big roles. And uh, and I think, you know, like what you're saying is you go you go and physically exercise. Can mm. I just ask you what would you do after that? Would you go and have a coffee and read the papers, or just chill, or, or what do you do once that happens? Let's yeah. say it happens today and it's Saturday morning tomorrow morning. You've gone out, you've done a big kayak, or you've yeah. gone for a run. You bash yourself. Yep. What what next? Best meal of the day for me is breakfast. Yep. Um, so it would be a decent-sized breakfast and a bit of time to reflect, recharge. Um, I try to completely remove myself and stay away from alcohol as best as I can during those difficult that's, moments. That's an important one. Because I think a lot of people use that as the, yep. the lever, whereas I think you've got to be physically active and engaged and the worst thing you do is go to the alcohol. So the I just think doesn't work. doesn't work. No. And it's just – it's a it might be a short-term fix, but the long-term effects on that, it actually – is counter counterintuitive and counterproductive to actually what you're trying to do, which is get better decisions. Yeah, totally. And so then I completely what about stay away family from it. then? How, how does that help? Yeah, and look, my family will laugh if, if they're listening to this at some point, whereas I just want to be in the bubble. So what I say to them is let's just, mate, let's lock it down. Yeah. Four of us at home, let's put the barbecue on, let's sit out in the balcony. I, I just want to be with you guys. Yeah, yeah. And they'll say, where do you want to go? And I'll say, what do you mean, where do I want to go? I'm here. Stay here. Yeah, I've got you guys around and I'm just, I just want to be with you. And so I'm a pretty simple guy with simple pleasures. Um, having your family around you, keeping yourself physically active and um, being able to do your job properly. It's not a complex recipe, is it? Well, as usual, I've got Matt Holland in here. He's our CEO of Mentor Business Sales. He's looking after those businesses that are up there for sale that we like to make sure we find good buyers. So, mate, what business do you want to showcase this week? Oh, thanks, Mark. We've got a great one in Sydney at the moment. It's uh, Inner West, really trendy place. We've been up and going for about two years now. Um, beautiful, absolutely sensational. What sort of business are we talking about now? So we've got a bar, yep. seven-day-a-week uh Licensed, fully licensed, um, so it, it's got a, a, the real license, you know, the old-fashioned one, very hard to get. That particular area that you're talking about, which the vendor does not want me to say, but mm. that pumps, that like it is really pumping that area, that's that's full on. Oh, absolutely, this place is busy, the The vendor is, um, he's literally not working in there, he, he spends about probably 15, 20 hours a week, he works full-time elsewhere. How long has the vendor been there? Uh, about two years now. So I guess it got good leases and all that sort of stuff. Really strong lease, uh, beautiful fit out, really, really up to date. And uh, as I said, best of all, he doesn't work there. He keeps an eye on it 15, 20 hours a week and, and he's pulling about 100000 just over $100,000 um, on the side. What sort of value are we talking about here? Look, you're looking for expressions of interest, but yep. look, as a guide, around the 300000 mark, so it's a good entry point. Sounds like a pretty good investment to me. Absolutely. It looks good to me too. Okay, if you want to go and look at this particular one, you can contact Matt Holland at uh, mentor.business. Mentor.business, yeah. yeah. Or you can just go onto the mentor.business site and uh, have a look around what else we've got for sale. And if you've got something for sale, tell us about it and we'll look after you. If you want to buy something, come to our site as well because we've got some plenty of stuff up there for sale. And mostly these businesses that we put up there for sale, we've looked at, we vetted. You're not going to buy rubbish on our website. So come and have a look at mentor.business. Thanks, Matt. See you next week, champ. Thanks, Mark. Well, welcome back. I'm here with Todd Greenberg, and he's the CEO of the National Rugby League, otherwise known as the NRL. Um, it's a, like, I guess it's the elephant in the room. We've got to quickly deal with it. Um, rugby League just keeps giving to the media, um, <laughs> especially in the off-seasons. And uh, to some extent, A, you're seen as responsible because, you know, you're the dude. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not responsible for individuals' actions, but you're responsible for NRL and the brand. Yep. And uh, that's that's one thing. Um, but equally, um, I guess at the, on the flip side of it, um, there is a lot of great things that come out of rugby league too. But you know, if you were to, had to watch the South, which I'm sure you did, the South and George game mm. last night, it was a bloody good game of football. Absolutely. And the football quality yeah. is ridiculously good. Mm. I mean, if you look at the you know that final series last year, absolutely. I, mean, I can definitely say it was a great series because we <laughs> won it. But but you know, like the quality of the new players coming through and the yeah. quality of the kids coming through is, is phenomenal. Yeah. So let's just quickly deal with the elephant in the room for the moment. Rugby league, as I said earlier on is a game that just keeps giving to the media. Mm. Why is it, if I look at AFL, and, and I was a sponsor of AFL for many years when um, Demetria was there, it seemed like the media, even though a lot of things happen in the AFL, similar to what happens in rugby league, yeah. it doesn't seem to get the same airtime as uh, off-field indiscretions yeah. get in rugby league. What, what is that? 
Oh, look. Uh, is I it give, Sydney versus Melbourne? I, I give you a couple of reasons. The first one is the Sydney Melbourne thing. I just think the psyche in Sydney and the way we the way we live, the way our media reports things, um, the, the habits of Sydney are just different to Melbourne. They just are fundamentally different. Um, second of all, I'm a realist to know that when rugby league gets it wrong, the stories are massive. When rugby league gets it right, the stories are massive. So you can't enjoy this massive profile and brand that we have where if you open today's paper, you'll have to get through the first eight pages from the back before you get to another sport. Now, we should never take that for granted, but that's what it is here. That's what we do. We saturate because people are emotionally connected to it, which means when you're getting it right, biggest strength. Your biggest strength is your brand and reputation. It's also your biggest weakness if you get it wrong. And so when players put their foot out of line and we have issues off the field, we wear a huge price for that because our reputation and brand take a whack, which is why we've got to stand up for the game occasionally. It doesn't make me popular, but it's probably still right. But can, can I ask you this, Todd, though? I mean, would people be probably excused for thinking that the NRL commentators are far more opinionated than rugby union commentators, soccer commentators or AFL commentators? Yeah. Uh, look, And, and by the way, some yeah. of these guys are mates of mine. Yeah, mates of mine too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Rothfield, you know. Yeah, yeah. Dean, you know, Kenty, I mean, they're mates, but sometimes they piss me off with what yeah. they've got to say, especially if they're talking about my turn. Yeah. But, like, it's just sometimes I think that. Yeah, I think you've got to be a realist also to know that – so we play games Thursday to Sunday, and then from Sunday to Thursday there's this void, and there are literally tens of dozens of chat shows and podcasts and live TV panels and columnages to write – so they've got to find ways to bring them on. And, and you know how the the way this game works is they want heroes and villains. Yeah. Um, and they want to build up players. Because it's a soap opera. It is. And, you know, I say, Reggie, don't take the soap out of the soap opera. Yeah. That, that's what makes us as valuable as we are. In saying that, though, you've got to understand what's really material. And when you're confronted with a material issue, you've got to really hit it hard and play straight. Occasionally, though, the soap opera will run around you and you can let a lot of that stuff go. Yeah. That, um, that's all part of the noise that rugby league brings. Yeah, because, I mean, I... I, mean, I I hate it and I love it, NRL 360. I watch it on Fox. But uh, it uh, sometimes it kills me. And like I mm. just think, oh, my God, come on, guys. Just, Heroes and villains. Oh, but it, it's so obvious to me. Yeah. And I don't know. If, but do you think they're, they're, they're doing it? Do you think – well, do, do you think that the producers of the show know – exactly what you just said, heroes and villains, and they're purposefully going out there to create the soap opera? Or do you oh, think it's just happening? No, I think they understand the underlying value of what they're trying to achieve, and it's trying to achieve debate and spirited debate and differences of opinions. Um, remember that when people, are, when people are in sport, which is slightly different to business, when people are in sport, it's an emotional connection. So when someone comes in and supports the Roosters or their team and they're going to buy a ticket and they're going to buy the jersey and they're going to come to a game... That's because they're emotionally engaged with that team. And when you're emotionally engaged with something, that's the... Like our chairman. Yeah, like your chairman. No one more emotionally engaged. And I say this about our club chairman all the time, that outside of their family, their role as a club chairman is the most important thing in their world. Mm. And so quite often that emotional connection will lead to some strange decisions, emotional decisions. And in business, you don't want to make emotional decisions. You want to make rational, well-considered thought through. What we see is a lot of emotion. In saying all of that, I wouldn't swap it for anything because that's what makes the game valuable, that emotional connection for people in the game. It's, it's uh, look, you know, I'm, I, we attend a board, I attend a board meeting every month or occasionally I miss it, but, but rarely. Um, and I go to as many home games as I can um, and sometimes away games. And that emotion is like that you're talking about. Yeah. At, with people, with guys and girls, but mostly guys that I'm aware of who are extremely rational business people, mm. particularly on my board, mm. but the level of emotion that rises above yep. their intellect yeah. is, including me, is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, um, uh, it's, it's, and it's not tribal. It's, it's, sort it's something of, inside it's, you. It's something more than that. It's gone way beyond tribal. Yeah. I mean, it's particularly if we're playing South or if we're playing the Bulldogs. They've yeah. seen it with the two teams we seem to not get on with the be- the worst of the best, or whatever you want to say, um, and uh, I, I, I just can't describe this. And so, as a result of this, I'd like to ask you: mm. What business do you see the NRL in, and what business are you in? 
Yeah, for me, that's that's a really simple question with a simple answer. We are absolutely right in the middle of the entertainment business, and that emotional connection means everything inside the business. So when I go to a game, I, I always try to challenge myself to get out and feel some of that emotion. So I was at the Cowboys last year, and I remember just sitting amongst 20 or 30 of them just watching them watch the game. And, it, mate, they were emotionally invested in that result. And when a referee makes an error, boy, the world's coming to an end. And when one of their players drops a ball, you know, that's like a dire consequences to their whole week. But again, people sometimes challenge me on this and say, you must get worried about that. That that makes your job hard. That's what the job's about. It's about managing that emotion. Now, I have to, as the leader of the sport, divorce myself sometimes of that emotion to make clear, rational decisions. But I have to understand that the people I'm dealing with are in the emotional environment. And the effect you're going to have on them. Absolutely. So, like, entertainment. So, I I, I get that. Um, You're in the business of entertainment. Yeah. Um, And... By the way, so are the players. Absolutely, they are. So they're the stars of the show, right? They're the stars of the show, and therefore they've got to get paid well and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely, and, you know, it's because without them there is no show. Yep. And um, and but some of these individuals provide colour. Yep. For example, let me just go back a bit. And one, this is one of the decisions I've, I hate that you made, but I'll, yep. I'll talk to you about it. Yeah. Origin, as you know, I love Origin. Yep. Um And. Uh, the, no punch, right? The, yeah, the yeah. gallon hitting uh, Nate on the yeah. chin that time. Um, yeah. That's part of the colour and part of the entertainment of the game. Mm. And now some people will think will hate me for saying this, and uh, you know you may have your own personal views behind this. You might not even want yeah. to tell me what they are. But yeah. I used to love at least at Origin, maybe not at the club level, but at least at Origin. There was a few little rules that could be bent mm. or sort of not adhered to so much and you know like if someone was roughing somebody up like you know Nate was running around and hitting everyone with his head um <laughs> Gal decided just to put one on his chin mm. um but that's not allowed anymore so how do you keep the color in the game but at the same yeah. time make sure the rules are appropriate given the new level of community standards because yeah. that's a big thing you're wrestling with all massively time. Yeah. and I don't even know what community standards is because no. the community's so broad today yeah and so there's some really good questions in all that. Community standards is something you've got to keep a very close eye on. How, who, who, who's the referee internally who's working that shit out? Yeah, like? oh, I think there's um, there's a, a range of different parts of that question. But for me, it's having a an understanding of what people think and believe, and that's evolving every day. Yeah. It really is. So, you and know, changing rapidly. Over the last, look at the last 12 to 24 months on uh, concepts like the Me Too movement. Yeah. And, the, the power that that's brought through, uh, not just our communities here in Sydney and Australia, but everywhere. Um, if you're naive to that or you want to live in a bubble to that, you'll fail spectacularly. Yeah, you can't ignore it. No, you can't ignore it. But nor, nor can you turn on a pivot and just flow with that all the time. You've got to have a core set of values and beliefs inside what you do but then you've got to understand what the community expectations are and you've got to find a balance in all of that. Well, how do you do that? Like, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, mean, I, I don't know. Do you have a, a, a someone in charge of... Community standards. I mean, or is that is that your role, or is there a group of you who yeah, sort of loosely look at that? There's a group of us um, around the executive table, and also you know commissioners who bring their views to the table independently. Um, and that's again when you come back to diversity and you come back to different views. That's why women inside rugby league is so important. If you and I sit around the table with a whole bunch of blokes, we won't be able to make good rational decisions on what that looks like because we need a diverse set of thinking, which is why. Um, you know, gender diversity around certain tables, why we need to consider these things. They're not just sound bites. These are fundamental to how you actually shape the game's future. And if you take your example on the punch, I get that there's a lot of people who would love to see that there. But you've also got to understand as we evolve the sport and we try to grow the sport, there's a lot of people who don't want to see that level of violence inside the game. So, Do you call it violence? Do you well, think it's any more violent than... Um Hitting someone in the chest with with you know your, your arms out in yeah. a proper tackle position, but yeah. actually giving them whiplash and their head goes. I mean, you're hitting someone so hard, like Sonny Bill style, where he used to yeah, really yeah. whack blokes. Yeah, and and that's a similar conversation we've had about the shoulder charge. Yeah, but I'm talking about you, you know, know. actually put your arms around. Yeah, them. yeah, <laughs> not not hold your arms in. So look, oh, I've had these debates. I have them regularly with fans. Actually, whenever I do things called a fan forum, yeah. fans will bring these sorts of things to me, and and I I do, I do understand their position, but I always come back to them by saying. My job's to run the game. My job's to make decisions in the game's best interests. Some of those some of those decisions will prove unpopular in certain segments, but I've got to think of the broader industry. Because the community standards today, you said it earlier, mm. um, sort of it's not just our old community standards that we would have looked at like 
25 years ago, we would have said, yeah. what are blokes like and what's, mm. you know, all that sort of stuff. Today, the community standard, the expectations, you have to consider just about everyone's view. Absolutely. And, um, and I mean, the old Adam Smith rule was, you know, like uh, you make decisions based on what the majority want. But today, the majority, you can't, majority of, in your case, the majority yeah. of your fans, but in your case, you actually have to go beyond the fans. You have to go beyond, yeah. pe- right into people who are not fans because, you know, they're going to reflect on our on our game. Yeah. I mean, you're, you, what about if somebody says to you, look, Todd, uh, I represent a group of people who are... Uh, Anti, take the view that any impact, whether consented to or not, is violent. Mm. Where do you cut off? Where do you say the game of rugby league as an Mm. entertainment Mm. package, Mm. appealing to people's emotions, both positive and negative, where do you, how do you work out when something is going to, when some request has gone too far or is too far on the edge? Yeah, uh, look, it's a good question, Mark. I think you've got to understand what the core fabric is that you're protecting. And so the physicality, the collision, um, that part of the sport should be maintained forever because that's, that's, that's what important. makes it great. Great. So I, I really, because that's, that's a really important thing for me to hear as a, as a fan of the game. Yeah. Now, I don't represent every fan of the game and I don't represent every person in the community. Yeah. But as, a, as an old school fan of the game, I like the, the collision. Absolutely. And I like the physicality of yeah. it. That's what makes rugby league great. That's exactly what makes Relative it unique. Relative everything else. Everything else. And that's what, if you're talking about in business sense, what's our unique selling proposition? Yep. It's the physicality and collision that people love to watch. Not everyone wants to do it. In fact, most people probably don't yep. or can't, but they want to watch it. So that's the entertainment product. What you have to do is have other offerings. So, you know, if you don't want to play a collision sport, you can still be a part of rugby league by playing touch football or tag football. Um, so this non-contact version at a community level is really important. You're playing a version of the big stuff, but you're part of the, the rugby league community, so to speak. So I think protecting the core of the game, which is all of the things that we just talked about there, what it, what's unique and what's great about it, never, ever get away from it. We want to make it safe, but that doesn't, don't mean, want to get that doesn't mean that yeah. it's soft. Yep. Um, so the game can be safe and still be tough. It's a big uh, balancing act. It is. Uh, a lot of it's a balancing act. Yeah, it is. Really, yeah, is. like sort of, you, and it's judgment base. Yeah, it's it's not uh, vote based. So you don't go out and um, poll everybody who watches the game, and even people who don't watch the game. You'd, so you can't you can't afford to run polls or every no. time. So you have to make judgments. Yeah. And now, how does that work internally at the NRL? So, I mean, do you? I mean, who do you involve? I mean, do you, I mean, like, who? For example, do you go to your board, or you do you go to your senior, um, your, your um, management team, your senior management team? Yeah, How, I mean, we've it? got a really strong senior management team, but I also rely on people in the industry who've got vast experience. You know, only a couple of weeks ago, I sat around for dinner and I had, I asked Gus, so Phil Gould, mm-hmm. Wayne Bennett, and Mal Meninga, and myself had dinner team. together. Some big egos around that table over totally. dinner. Um, <laughs> but you know, these are guys. There's, there's one guy there who's an immortal. So that's Mal, um, and coaches our national team, and arguably one of our, our greatest. Uh, you've got Wayne Bennett, who's coached 800 games, been around the game for three decades. Then you've got probably one of the smartest guys in the game, Phil Gould. And so what did I want to do with them? I wanted to pressure test some of my thoughts and views on them before I decided to land on a position. That doesn't mean that everything they said to me I'm going to listen to or I'm going to agree with. Was that pre or post the Penrith drama? That was before that. And it was before (laughs) actually we provided what was called the no-fault stand-down on Jack DeBellin. And it was before I landed on a a whole pile of different sanctions on different players and clubs and salary caps. I I went to them to have a discussion to pressure test some of my my thoughts because I'm not always going to be right. Yep. Um, and, and I think you're a little naive if you think that you live inside a vacuum in a bubble and you just make decisions and you expect them always to be right. Totally. Humans are going to get things wrong. I'm going to get things wrong from time to time. So why wouldn't I lean on and build relationships with people who have vast experience and who give me their feedback? Now, well, that's a, Can I just stop you? Because yeah. that's a really important point because we've got small business owners out there, right? And you know, we have small and, and, and medium-sized business owners and they come up with this idea they think that, what the marketplace wants. Yeah. But they never test it. Yeah, you've got and to test it. basically what you're saying is I'm building a product here and yeah. I, there's some parts of my product, some features of my product I need to change yeah. or I need to manage. But what you're doing is you're, you're pro- testing the prototypes. 
absolutely with Wayne Bennett's and the Gus, yeah. etc. Absolutely, and, now, um, and 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 I I presume also you tested internally. Absolutely, and, yeah, do, yeah. And, and they probably drop down into the various parts of yeah. the smaller parts of your environment. Yep. And you look at and like any business, we look at the numbers. You know, we understand the analytics, so we'll do a deep dive into whether it's statistically based or what the commercial impacts are. So you, you do a number of different layers to test it, and then the final part in all of that, and and this will probably resonate with the audience is. Because um, I know you do a lot of discussion on mentoring. Separate to all of that, outside the rugby league bubble, I've had a mentor for nearly 20 years who has nothing to do with rugby league, in fact, lives in Melbourne. And when I sit down with him on pretty much a quarterly basis, that mentoring discussion has got nothing to do with the game and the decisions. It's about me, it's about my values, it's about my beliefs, it's about my thought process. So when he challenges me as a mentor, it's got nothing to do with the decision-making. It's everything to do with the value set. How would you choose this mentor? Uh, you know what? For the first 10 years, I didn't even know he was a mentor. Mm. Oh, that's usually the way. Uh, it, it just evolved. He's a guy who's um, a bit older than me, mid-60s, uh, who came into my life sort of 25 years ago and just we developed a relationship, friendship, um, and he's an honest straight shooter who just tells you what you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And, and, um, and holds you accountable. And holds me accountable and continually checks me yeah. on some of the things that I've said I want to stand for. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I just find it unbelievably valuable. And again, no matter how senior a position you're in, a leadership position, um, no one doesn't need someone to talk to. Yeah, and uh, and someone to challenge you, someone to ask you questions. Someone Absolutely. To, s- someone to throw them up at you, like, you go, wow, I didn't expect that one. Yeah. I mean, like, th- and that's, by the way, and that's what I keep telling the audience, a mentor is not someone who gives you the answers. A mentor is someone who asks you the questions. You've got yeah. to find the answers. Yeah. And, I mean, that that's great you said that. I mean, I, and, by the way, for those people listening, that wasn't produced. That wasn't a stage <laughs> question. No, it wasn't. Todd, Todd actually <laughs> came up with that himself. Uh, uh, so, because, you know, rugby league... I mean, as an entertainment game, um, we just established that, you know, you're running a fine balancing act. Mm. How do you, to me, the way it seems to me anyway, and I, and I read a lot of the social stuff on this, it seems like to me that there are, there is a, a development of radical views mm. either side of the spectrum mm. in relation to rugby league now. Yeah. A bit like yeah. in society generally. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. does this stuff, perplex you? I mean, like... It interests me. Um, it's it's a bit like social media in some respects. I hear people talk about social media all the time and they tell me that if you're on social media, you're, um, you're misinformed. And if you're not in social media, you're uninformed and you sort of, you can't win. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you've got to be there. But you've got to be there because you, if you're not there, you're missing out on something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's a little bit of that in that question you just asked. Um, in saying that, though, I mean, the trajectory that we're on as a sport is pretty phenomenal. I mean, I'll throw this at you. In 2012, the game's revenues, the NRL's central revenues, about $180 million. This year, 2019, we'll go past about $510 million. If I put me on the Australian Stock Exchange, we're in the top five of growth mm. over that period of time. So the growth of the game's phenomenal. All of that money comes in, and by the way, it goes back out again. It's a distribution model. Um, you know, yeah, I think you should reserves. explain that because I know about this, but you yeah. should explain what you mean by distribution model. Yeah, so what it means is effectively we're a sport that centralises its revenues but then distributes that back to clubs and players and grassroots. Yeah. So, so you, don't, you, don't, you don't carry retentions. In other words, you're not like a, a BHP is building up retained earnings. No, yeah. no. Now we will do over this period of time, we will hold some money back and we will make some investments for the long-term future of the game, as you would expect us to do. But primarily our role is to generate revenues for the sport and push it back into the sport. So, you know, we're about to invest 55 million bucks into grassroots participation over the next four years. That's like a supercharged investment into um, junior rugby leagues and it hasn't been done before. Um, now, where we spend that money and how we spend that, they're all big decisions for us to make, but Jesus, sport's in good shape to be able to grow its future. And that's really what I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm less concerned about the day-to-day struggles and crisis, yeah, we'll manage that. That's part of what you do. But my eye is on the big prize, which is growth. what does the future look like? Gro- and growth. And growth, absolutely. And to, to grow, you have to have more people. So, yeah, I mean, a bit more, my business, I'm in, I'm in financial services and we've got licences and all that sort of stuff. And one of the struggles I con- con- constantly have um, with myself and my my, my, my GL team, my group mm. leadership team, is the balance between compliance and growth. Yeah. Um, I notice um, under Nick Weeks, your team, you've got a big compliance team growing. We do uh, now, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a big integrity unit. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and compliance is also part of um, putting the obligation on the clubs to 
effectively um, come and tell you where there's a drama. Yeah. Um, pre pre you finding it out. Absolutely. Uh, um, yeah. Um, how do you balance that up between that 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 the growth of the compliance mm. department with the growth of the you having to grow the game too because yeah. you know you got competitors closing in on you absolutely everyone's coming after every because everyone's yeah. coming after everybody everyone's coming after oh, yeah. everyone and everything so yeah. how do you do that I mean particularly in this city particularly in Sydney oh, it's the most 100%. competitive sports marketplace let alone business marketplace um, I I fundamentally don't believe our competitors are our other sports um, I think that's a an easy one for people to relate to you know people think that the AFL and the NRL which were the two priority sports in winter. Um, who take the broadcast rights and the majority of you know fans and engagement? People think we're at war with each other. I, I argue that's the opposite. I keep in touch with my counterpart in the AFL regularly. We talk and swap ideas and swap information. And yeah, Gil. Yeah. So Gil and I have formed a really good friendship relationship, um, and we'll we'll talk a lot. Um, and I think that's really healthy because a lot of my challenges are his challenges. Um, we're in. Uh, great debate uh, and competition with a lot of other offerings. You know, all the digital opportunities, Netflix, going to the movies, mm. going to the theatre, all of these things are our competitors. Mm. And if we don't understand what those competitors actually offer in comparison to what we offer, we're not doing our jobs properly. So I'm less concerned about my competition with Gil. I'm more concerned about the other options. So so growth rugby league, if you're to be some, – if someone is going to sit around and mark you, Mm. Or if you mark yourself, yep. what do you think are the two leading things that we would look at to say whether Todd Greenberg, yep. when he retires from rugby league, has done put it in a better position to what it, to where it was when he first started? Yep. So let me let me say this to you that I reckon the best leaders uh, who run big businesses can say their strategy in one sentence, and our strategy is to have more people playing the game, more people watching the game. So at the end of my tenure, if there's more people playing it and more people watching it, then I'm a success. And when I say more people playing it, I mean the traditional, like you and I did, grew up, played tackle footy on Saturday mornings in a club. That's one part of it. But the other, other whole part is what's touch football look like, what's tag footy look like, the opportunities for boys and girls to play. So that's on the more people playing it. On the more people watching it, it's about your TV numbers and your broadcast numbers. It's about your in-stadium experience. And then third, and the growth is in digital. So in the simplest of senses, if there's more people playing and more people watching, when I finish this tenure, give me a tick. If there's not, I haven't done my job probably because all of that will generate revenue. I was going to make that the last question but because it's just in the interest of time, but I have one more. Yeah. And, and, and it's something I'm actually – I never thought I'd be passionate about and I never thought I would actually even take an interest in um, if you go back 20 years. But um, the women in rugby league, mm. and as you know, we've got a team. Yeah. And um, all of a sudden I've become really interested in it. I mm. actually think it's pretty cool. I really like yeah. it. I like watching it. There's a lot it. of sceptics, mate, at the beginning. There's a lot of sceptics who said it wouldn't work. I like watching it. Yeah. I, I enjoy watching it. It's good to hear. By the way, I should tell you, it's a bloody expensive exercise for it us. It is. And, um, you know, we would like a little bit of help, but anyway. A bit like your podcast. You've got to get in early. You've got to keep yeah, doing it, keep yeah, doing it, yeah, keep doing it. Yeah, it's costing us it'll a fucking turn. fortune, mate. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I love that little turn. But, uh, but, but, but the that positive decision, yeah. um, was that made by the board or was it by, made by the um, group leadership team to, to really – put your shoulder behind women playing rugby league and having it broadcast and having it and showcasing and making it as big a part of the game as yeah. men. Yeah, look, I'm glad you asked that question because in in our original plans, it was probably two years away. It was a 2020 deliverable. But there's no doubt that what we watched, again, when you look at community expectations and you look at what's happening in the community and the market, we had the opportunity to bring that forward. So we fast-tracked investment. We changed some priorities to actually deliver that early because we thought it's too good an opportunity not to. There's a demand for it. There's women, female athletes ready to play it. Let's get in early. Now, there's a whole pile of reasons why people said, don't do it, don't go too fast, uh, it won't work. Uh, again, leaders are, are paid to make decisions. So you rip the Band-Aid off and you say to the team, guys, we're going to do it, let's rip into it, and we're going to bring that forward 24 months. And we did. And i got to tell you, we didn't get everything right but, Jesus, it was a spectacular success. Unbelievable. Um, I when mean... I turned up at North Sydney Oval last year when the girls played in the Origin, I arrived early and the New South Wales girls were getting off the team bus and I'm not sure who was more excited. There was some young girls and boys, by the way, sorry, young girls and boys who were there and 
they were waiting to get autographs from the girls and the girls getting off the bus were more excited to see kids actually there to see them. And I'm not sure who was more excited, the kids or the players. And, and at that point when they ran on the field and they started to run into each other in collision, yep. I thought we've got this right. This is going to last a long time. It was a great game. The only yeah. thing I'm filthy on is that Queensland won. Um, so I mean, <laughs> as a New South Welshman, mate, you've got to sort of, you've got to. I know, I know, you get it's supposed to be impartial, but can you somehow sort of help New South Wales? I couldn't believe that even Queensland won that game too. Like they still win the, they went won the women's. That's the first state of origin women's match. Is that the first one? That was the well. They've been playing what they call an interstate challenge. Yeah. Um, but for New South Wales and Queensland to play that under an Origin banner, and for us to put the full imprimatur of the game behind it. And, you know, we're going to do it again this year. Will they play um, at the main event? Like, Yeah, ultimately I think what we want to do is, um, where possible, put them side by side with the men. So we don't play curtain raises, we play double headers. Yep. There's a really That's distinct I mean. nuance in the language. Yep. But then sometimes there's other opportunities where you can give them a standalone event where the whole event's about them. And that's what we did at Origin. You know, there's 8,000 people at North Sydney Oval that night and it was spectacular. And to, again, to see the pride in the girls' eyes when all these kids wanted to meet them, I mean, that's the start. I hope in 20, 30, 40 years someone looks back and says, how were they not playing at that point in time? You know, because that was a, a landmark moment for our sport. It really was. And I hope clubs like ours, there's only four of us, who actually promoted and yeah. paid for the girls yeah. to play rugby league at, at, at first grade level. Um, I hope you guys remember us and... Uh, Look Long after memories. us down the track, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Todd Greenberg has been fantastic. I Thanks really appreciate me, your time. I loved every minute of it. Good on you. Thanks for having me. See you, mate.